All right, uh, so again, as I mentioned, we're continuing our series through our new church mission statement. The mission statement is this. The Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. And today, we're talking about that second element, right? Display. So we have kind of have a, a rhythm here. Our scheduling got a little mixed up, but typically it's delight, display, declare. Delight, display, declare. And today is about that second element, display. How do we display his love to one another in one particular way? Uh, and that way we're looking at today is through discipling, discipling one another. So uh, the first order of business, as in any kind of class like this, is, is definitional. What, what are we talking about? What is discipleship? What does it mean to make disciples? Uh, I have a, a group text with five of my best friends from college, and most of them are in the finance world, uh, which means sometimes they text about things I completely do not understand, right? It's just this like alphabet soup about rates and I don't know, other weird stuff I, like the market. I don't know what these, they're referring to. Uh, and it's just this kind of like foreign language to me. Well, I think that's sometimes how it, it feels for people who are unfamiliar with the church, unfamiliar with Christianity. Maybe they put their faith in Jesus and there's this whole language that we have that, isn't really used elsewhere out in the world. And discipling is, I think, one of those key words, one of those words that we use all the time and someone might be like, what does that actually mean? I'm not quite sure what we're talking about. It's not, it's not language that is common in really any other context. So it's important that we define what it is. And we could even just use it frequently and then fail to define it and just have a, a misunderstanding in our own minds. And so we want to we wanna be able to clear that up. Uh, and we'll start with the Greek behind the English word for disciple. So in Greek, the noun for disciple is mathetes. I have that there at the top of your notes, uh, which is, fun fact, related to our English word for mathematics, mathetes, mathematics. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, and the verb that's related to it is monthano, and the verb means to learn to learn, which is why mathematics is the related word to the noun, because mathematics is about learning. You're learning. So a disciple is, in probably the, the shortest definition you could have, a learner. It is a learner. And I, I want us to think first about how broad and generic that word is. That's a really, really like generic term, a, a learner. So a, a learner could be someone in a classroom, like a student, but not necessarily. Uh, a learner could be an apprentice in a craft, like getting their hands dirty and you know, hands-on kind of learning, but not necessarily. Uh, a learner can, can be someone, something, a learning is something that can take place on the streets. It can take place, as I said, in a classroom. It can take place over lunch or with a book. It can take place uh, with your hands. You're learning to do something. It's a really broad, generic term uh, that means a lot of different things or can take place in a lot of different contexts. So the question, the important question, is what is a Christian disciple supposed to be learning? What, what, what learning is an aspect of being a follower of Jesus? And the answer to that, I think, is, is very clear in Matthew 28. So uh, this is the very famous Great Commission passage where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I won't bore you with the Greek syntax, but in that, in that, uh, uh, that sentence, that pair of verses there, there's only one main verb. There's only one imperative. There's only, re- technically speaking, there's only one command. There's four verbs that you see in bold there, but three of them are uh, subordinate to the main verb, which is make disciples. So make disciples is really the point And then the other three are really kind of explaining how to do that. What does that really mean? It's unpacking what making disciples entails. So a disciple, I think we can, as we look at that, those those two verses, a disciple is someone who has been reached with the gospel. So there's the going element. They've been reached. They have believed in Jesus. That's the baptism side of things. And they are seeking to obey all that he has commanded. There's this teaching element. So they're, they're learning to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And I think Paul gives us some summary statements of what it means to be a disciple in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Philippians 3. So 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me, Paul, as I am of Christ. Philippians 3, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So notice in those passages, there's uh, really the, the main thing you could say is this imitation of Christ, but there's this kind of secondary thing where you're imitating Christ by imitating, by learning from believers around you, whether it's Paul or those who have a good example, as, as uh, he says in Philippians Three And so discipleship, discipling relationships are how God has chosen to accomplish his own purposes of, in the words of Romans 8, conforming us to the image of his son. So that's what God is doing. That's the work God is doing in the church. That's the work God is doing in us. And he has promised to do that through this thing that we call discipleship. We are learning to imitate Jesus. We are learning to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. So if you want a a short definition, I don't have this in your notes, but uh, just real brief, real kind of simple. Discipling involves followers of Jesus helping others become more like Jesus. Discipling involves followers of Jesus helping others become more like Jesus. The, The first part of that's important, right? This is something for followers of Jesus to do. Uh, I think sometimes we have this impression that uh, a disciple is like a super Christian, right? You know what I mean? Like you've got, you know, the normal believers and, you know, maybe if you're, you know, really want to be on the, the A-team, you become a church member. Ooh, look at that. But a disciple, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's varsity right there. That's a, that's a really big deal. A disciple is this like super class of Christians. But no, uh, very clearly from the language of Matthew 28, from around the entire Bible, a disciple is anyone who is a follower of Jesus And so every Christian is a disciple and every disciple is called to disciple others. Uh, And I want to be clear at the beginning, the the Bible talks about discipleship in a a really big, kind of big picture way that includes evangelism. I would put evangelism as kind of an umbrella under this big umbrella of discipleship. So uh, kind of think of it like this. Uh, If uh, let's say, so let's, yeah, so that is, That line is your life, your maturity in Christ, 
Lord willing, right? And this is your conversion, right? So this is where you put your faith in Jesus. This is evangelism, right? So put an E there for evangelism. I would call this whole umbrella discipleship, right? That whole big arc is becoming more like Jesus. Here's where you actually put your faith in Jesus, but that whole work is pushing you towards Christ-likeness. We've already done uh, theological equipping on evangelism, so I'm really just going to talk up here. Let me give another color. So, right, this is the, what? Okay. Someone's pranking me, Carl. There we go. Um, This is the evangelism side. This is the maturity side. So, right, So this is after you put your faith in Jesus. I would say this is what we're talking about today, right? The maturity side of discipleship. Evangelism, I would put under this big category of discipleship, this learning to imitate Christ uh, is what you're trying to to impart to someone, trying to impart the gospel to them, help them understand what it means to walk with Jesus. Um, But there's a point where they believe and then eventually uh, from there, it becomes about this maturity in Christ. So that's what we're talking about Today, uh, obviously, we talk about discipling our kids, right? Paul, or not Paul, Carl, uh, talked about that last week. Uh, that's, that's this half of discipleship, right? Because our kids, most of the time, aren't yet believers. Uh, and Lord willing, they put their faith in Christ, and then we're discipling them to maturity. Uh, and uh, yeah, one other thing I want to say, too, before we really get rolling, uh, I'm mostly this morning going to be talking about a kind of more formal, probably one-on-one intentional kind of discipling relationship. Uh, But that, if that's, if you walk away and you think that's the only thing discipleship is, I think I've done a poor job. Uh, Because in a healthy church, organic discipleship should be happening all the time. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but it's not going to be really centralized in this, uh, this class. So, I see how Jared is with his kids and I learn how to be a faithful Christian dad. He's not like sitting down instructing me, here's what you do with your kids, right? I just watch him and be tender and yet stern with discipline and clear and instruction. And I learn from Jared how to be a faithful Christian dad. I, I, I hear my members of my community group pray and I learn how to talk to God more. I learn from them hearing their prayers. I go to DJ's poker nights, right? And I'm encouraged by my brothers in Christ, by our mutual fellowship together. And that all of that is a part of discipleship. All of that is molding me into the image of Jesus. But that's most, I just want to say at the beginning, most of what we talk about today uh, is going to be kind of in the more formal, sitting down, trying to disciple one another kind of relationship, trying to move someone along this line with a more intentional kind of, uh, or in a more intentional kind of way. Uh, so uh, as with anything, uh, I could spend this entire time giving you all the nuts and bolts, do this, this is a helpful way to do it. And we'll do some of that towards the end. But if you don't understand the why, if you don't feel the why for discipleship, none of that's going to be useful. So I want to spend uh, the beginning of our time here giving you six reasons why we need to disciple one another. And really all of these flow from the language we have in our mission statement. We want to display God's love to one another. So all of these flow from a desire to display God's love in the church. Uh, But there, I think, are six good reasons, at least in my mind, why we should uh, take the time to disciple one another. Reason number one the inevitability of influence. 
the inevitability of influence. So you notice I have copyright Mark Dever there. Uh, I just lifted this one straight out of uh, his book on discipling, which I'm going to give away. Uh, I'm going to give away two of them at the end of this class. Um, so I just couldn't say it any better than he had. And I would, should also say at the beginning, a lot of this talk is going to be copyright Mark Dever. So if anyone out there, Capitol Hill Baptist, listens to this, copyright Mark Dever, don't sue me, okay? Um, but he says a lot of really helpful stuff about discipleship. So this first one is real simple. You become who you hang out with. You become who you hang out with. You see this everywhere. You see it with teenagers, the group, the clique that they hang out with, they all become like each other, right? You see this in the working world, the people you hang out with, the people you work with, you will naturally influence and become like one another. It's inevitable for us to influence one another. Jesus says, Luke chapter six, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about bad influences. He says, bad company ruins good morals. You might have great morals, but bad company will influence you away from them. There, or there's also the possibility of good influence, of course. 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching. You've heard what I've said. My conduct my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. He's saying, Timothy, you've, you've seen my life. You, you've learned from just hanging out with me. You've, you know what, how I've tried to live and Lord willing, that has influenced you, that has had an impact on how you and your own pastorate off in, uh, in Ephesus, Ephesus uh, are going to execute your ministry. It's inevitable. This influence just happens by who you hang out with. So, uh, if we love one another, if we want to help one another become more like Jesus and influence is inevitable, then be a good one. Then we should be intentional. We should, we should be mindful of stewarding that well. And I just want to say, uh, and I hope this doesn't come across as, I don't know, maybe arrogant or anything like that. But uh, if, if any of you have been blessed by my ministry at Parkway, uh, my teaching or just my counsel or anything like that, there's a pastor in West Texas you can thank. Uh, I, I, the most significant mentor I've ever had in my life was my pastor at our church uh, out near Lubbock. Uh, and he just was a godly man who preached faithfully, who loved his people well. And uh, I'm really thankful for the influence that he had on me and my understanding of ministry. And a big part of it, a big part of his influence on me was caught more than taught. So we did sit down and he, we would talk and I would ask him questions and things like this. But just seeing him love his family, just seeing him love his church, just seeing him be faithful in preaching the word, that had an unbelievable influence on me. And I was said, man, I want, I want my ministry to look like that. And a lot more of it was caught than taught. So uh, that's an inevitable part of discipleship. So we should, we should strive to be good influences. And that dovetails with reason number two here, the essential relationality of the church, the essential relationality of the church. So Christianity is not about God saving a bunch of isolated individuals and then them all having this, you know, kind of living on an island, relating to him in their own personal, private way. Uh, Christianity is about God calling together a people who become more like Jesus together. 
This is the design that he has made for his church. The church is a series of relationships of of, of people who have covenanted together, who have made this commitment to God and to one another based on a shared relationship with Christ who want to grow together. And we are called to do that work together. So the the Bible just assumes this relational reality in the church. You see, I I won't read them for you, but just there's a bunch of just one another commands in the New Testament. One another, one another, one another. There are, the the Bible assumes these relationships exist. It it does not have a category for you just, you know, coming to church and, and getting your, you know, Jesus download so your, you know, personal quiet time can be more epic uh, and then just leaving and not having relationships with the people you gather with. It, 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 so, that idea is so foreign to the scriptures. The Bible assumes there's relationality in the church. And so again, we want to steward that well by loving one another, displaying the love of God to one another and pushing one another to become more like Jesus. All right, reason number three, why disciple? To become like Christ is to become more authentically human. To become like Christ is to become more authentically human. It is a loving thing to disciple your fellow believers because there is a sense in which discipleship is living into your God-given design. The way God made you. So Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. When they fell, that image was retained. We still all bear the image of God, but because of sin, the image is marred. It's corrupted. It's not as it should be. But Christ, Colossians 1 tells us, is the image of God. He is true God, yes, but he is also true man. We see in Christ what authentic humanity actually looks like. So to imitate him, the essence of discipleship is to become more authentically human. Uh, Typically, our, our world associates authenticity with living according to your own desires. Living according to your desires, our world says, is what it means to be authentic. We're actually biblically It's not living according to your own desires that's authentic. It's living according to your own design. Living according to the way God made you is what actually we are called to be and called to do. That is what real authentic humanity looks like, made to live and be like Jesus. So if we love our fellow Christians in our church, We should long for them to be more authentically human, to be more authentically living out the design God has made for them, God has created them for. So that's reason number three. To become like Christ is to become more authentically human. Reason number four, this one's real, real simple. I'll spend about five seconds on it. Obedience to Christ. Discipleship is what we're commanded to do, Matthew 28. It's not optional. Jesus says, do it, so do it. Pretty simple, right? Discipleship, very clearly from Matthew 28, doesn't end with someone becoming a believer, with them getting baptized. There is the teaching them, the maturity, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. So Jesus says, do it, do it. Reason number five, it's another thing that's not optional. Holiness, the necessity of holiness. Now, to be clear, we are, not saved by our own efforts to live moral lives. We are saved 
through the substitutionary death of Jesus because Christ has lived and died in our place. All those who have faith in him await eternal joy in glory. That is our hope. That is our confidence in the foundation of our faith. That's all true and beautiful, but it is also true that if that salvation does not produce real holiness in your life, there's no reason to believe the salvation is actually there. Good works are the fruit of a changed heart. And if there's no fruit, there's no reason to believe there's something at the root. Discipleship means engaging in this work of putting sin to death and pursuing righteousness and growing in holiness and and helping one another to do it because holiness is not optional. Now, I'm going to say in a a second, we don't want to oversell discipleship. Of course, none of us is going to be sinless. None of us are going to be, you know, perfect in this life. But if there is, Hebrews 12, a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, we should love one another by helping each other grow in holiness. Reason number six, why we should disciple the future of the church. The future of the church. Discipleship is the means through which the faith is handed down from one generation to the next. That's true at the family level with children. Carl taught about that last week. It's true at the level of church leadership. Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me, Paul, the old dude in this situation, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So if it's true at the level of children and it's true at the level of church leadership, every generation will reap the fruits or the weeds that were sowed by the generation that came before them. If that's all true, the the future of the church depends on the work of discipleship, on entrusting the truths of God to the next generation. We must take this burden seriously. If we want to bless our own children, if we want to bless our grandchildren, if we want to bless the next generation of pastors of this church, we need to pass on the faith through discipleship. So that flows from our love for the future church as well. All right, so that's all the why. That's the foundation work there. Hopefully I've convinced you with those six reasons that discipleship really is important. It is not something that is optional for us. It is something we all must be engaged in. So then the big question is, How do we do it? We've got the why. How do we do it? And first, I want to just identify some common mistakes to avoid. Some pitfalls that will hinder a discipling relationship. Most of these are drawn from, well, some of them are, yeah, drawn from the Bible. A lot of them are just drawn from my own experience too. Just just seeing and in my own uh, mistakes, uh, knowing how poorly discipling can go if it's not done wisely. So, First mistake to avoid, a one-sided discipleship. So this is, this is simple. This is when one party in the discipling relationship is interested in ha- maintaining this relationship, interested in discipleship, and the other party is not. Uh, right? So this happens, I feel like, all the time. You have an older guy who's like, I know I'm called to disciple. I want to do this. And they, you know, talk with a younger guy. And the younger guy is kind of like, yeah, I think I'm okay. You know, and then the older guy's just kind of, spinning his wheels, trying to pour into him. And he's just not, it's just not being received. You know, maybe the young guy's canceling last minute, not reading the book, not taking advice, whatever. 
very famous discipleship verse, Proverbs 27, 17, in the group that I was primarily discipled through in high school. This was our big verse, right? Uh, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Notice there, you have to sharpen each other. Right? There's, there's a mutuality to any discipling relationship. You can't just have, you know, one piece of iron chasing the other one saying, let me sharpen you, right? That doesn't work like that. Obviously, iron doesn't talk. That'd be the main reason that doesn't work. But you get the point, right? Discipleship involves this sharpening one another. So if, if someone's not interested, then it's not going to be productive. Second mistake to avoid overselling discipleship, overselling discipleship. Uh, I hope, again, I've I've shown you discipleship is incredibly important. We should not expect too much too soon. You should not expect too much too soon. Becoming like Jesus is a slow, long, incremental, I mean, often, not often, always lifelong work. Don't think, you know, I'm being discipled by Mary and Mary's amazing. I'll never sin again. No, you will. Or, you know, if you're discipling someone, don't don't think what's wrong with this person. I give them the best advice and then they just throw it away and they, they never listen to me and they continue to struggle with the same sins. Discipling's a slow, long haul work. Don't oversell it. The Bible says we should continue to expect to struggle with sin. Until Jesus returns, 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the thing. I have never counseled a guy through habitual use of pornography and had him never fail at some point in our discipleship relationship. I imagine sometimes that happens. It's never happened in uh, a relationship that I've had where I'm trying to help a young guy through that. Uh, No one starts meeting with someone to work on their anger issues and then never has an anger blow up again. It doesn't work that way, right? It's not the existence of the relationship that magically changes everything. It's the long, slow work of becoming more like Jesus that changes everything. Everything And if we oversell it, we're just going to be disappointed by how slow it is. It's going to be slow. It's going to take a long time. And if we don't realize that, we will be crushed by our failures. But third mistake, the flip side, don't undersell discipleship either. Don't undersell it. Don't expect too much, but don't expect too little either. God's work is slow, it's incremental, but it's also effective. It works. Don't don't sell God short by saying, oh, we're just kind of, you know, nothing's really gonna change. No, it does change by God's grace. Look at Philippians 2. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. It's God who's at work in you. We work out what God works in and God's work is effective. He really does produce change. He really does mold us into the image of his son. Even if it's slow, even if it's frustrating, don't undersell what God can do. 
I have seen in my own life, in the lives of guys I've walked with, I have seen tremendous growth and just tremendous encouragement over time because God is at work. So don't undersell discipleship. Fourth mistake, fear of incompetence. I feel like this one's really common uh, in the church today, fear of incompetence. I remember uh, before we moved here, uh, from Chicago. In our church there, I'd been meeting with a guy in our church and I was uh, just trying to pour into him. We got lunch like once a month or something like that. Uh, and since we we're moving, uh, I, I was like, I need to kind of hand off this discipleship relationship to someone else. So I called uh, another guy who was in our community group together, a mature, godly guy. And I said, hey, uh, I've been meeting with this guy. Do you think you could start meeting with him? I think you, you have a lot. You could really bless him. And, and uh, I know he respects you and I think it'd be really great. Uh, and this guy on, on the phone said, oh man, that sounds great, but I've never been trained to do that. I don't know how to do that. And, and I think he had this, this impression, this mentality that, man, discipleship is something, it's really just best left for the experts. Like pastors, people with seminary degrees, people who stand at pulpits, those are the ones who should be doing discipleship. And he's like, I'm just a normal guy. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. He had this fear of his own incompetence. But that's not the biblical vision for discipleship. This idea that, that pastors, professionals are the ones who are supposed to do it. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I want you to get so sick of this verse in this series this semester, because we try to use it almost every week. God has given the leaders of the church not to do the work of ministry, but to equip the saints, that's you guys, to do the work of ministry. That's, that's what preaching is supposed to produce. That's what our counseling is supposed to produce. That, watch this. That's what we're trying to do right now. Theological equipping class. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to equip you for the work of ministry. It is not something... The work of ministry is not best left to the professionals. It is something every Christian is involved to do. And so this is what I said to my friend on the phone who I was trying to encourage him. I was like, just meet with this guy once a month. It'd be great. I said, man, you attend church so faithfully. I see you love your wife. I, I hear you make great observations from the Bible and our community group. I think you'll be great. Like really, it, this, the influence you can have on him, don't sell it short. So yeah, sure, you know, formal counseling experience is great. I think in some cases it is necessary. So I'm not saying that's, you know, that's irrelevant. In some cases it's necessary. But Christians, you are not incompetent. You are not incompetent. You have all that you need. You are, Lord willing, I hope, being equipped you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in your heart and you have a Bible. 2 Timothy 3 tells us what it's good for. It says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. What is that but discipleship? You're not saying, here's all my wisdom, I hope it helps. You're saying, here's what I've seen in the scriptures. I know it's helpful because God said it. Of course it's helpful. 
So don't let that be an excuse. Brothers and sisters, you are not incompetent. Final mistake here, which is related to that last one, a lack of authority. A lack of authority. So this, again, flows from this fear of incompetence. But if indeed you have the Spirit of God, if indeed you have the Holy Scriptures, then you can and should speak into the lives of your fellow Christians with authority. It's not just a, yeah, here's an idea. I mean, if, you, if you've got Bible, you can say it with authority. You don't need to be afraid. Ephesians 5, I want you, there's a connection here between the work of the Spirit in your own heart and the authority you have in the lives of your brothers and sisters. So Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Spirit. He's talking about in the church here, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's one way we are filled with the Spirit. We we do the work that the Spirit does through us. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another way. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So because of the, the commonality we share, that we, the people of God, are individually temples of the Holy Spirit and corporately a temple of the Holy Spirit, we have authority to speak into one another's lives and we, have, we should have the submissive heart to receive those words. So we should speak authoritatively into each other's lives in a discipling relationship. All right, so that's, let's shift. We're getting more and more practical, I hope, as the further we get into this lesson. Next, how do you start a discipling relationship? Okay, I don't want to make these mistakes. I know why I should do this. How do I start this? The first thing you need is the where. Where do you find a discipling relationship? I think the best answer is in your church. I don't think the best answer. That was me doing a lack of authority thing. The best answer is in your church. I have three reasons for that. I'll get to them in a second. First, I should say, it's not a sin to disciple someone outside of Parkway. Uh, It's not a sin to be discipled by someone outside of Parkway. But discipleship will thrive best in the context of the local church. I think the New Testament just assumes this. The New Testament just assumes this, and, but I have three reasons why I make that claim. The first is real simple. You see each other more. You see each other. It's just natural connections. You, you come to the same place every week to worship. There's just time you get together every Sunday morning. You can bank on it. I'm going to see her and I can talk to her and we can have a conversation, right? It's just natural connections. Reason two, this is big, You affirm the same statement of faith and you hear the same preaching. If I have a friend who I'm trying to disciple, who's a member at another church in town, let's say it's a a more of a charismatic church and his pastor is is trying to teach them how to speak in tongues during their their quiet time. I have concerns with that. I'm working against the preaching they're hearing which is going to be really, really unproductive for a discipling relationship. Now, I, I should, you know, because I love my friend, I shouldn't be like, well, I'll leave you to it then. I mean, I would say, here's my concerns. But for a regular discipling relationship, it is incredibly beneficial to sit under the same preaching and to affirm the same statement of faith, to say, here's the starting line. We all agree on this. So I can say, hey, here's what our statement of faith says. You say you believe this. It doesn't look like you're living like that. Third reason, which is similar to the last one, but you submit to the same elders 
and you have already covenanted together to do the work of discipleship in each other's lives. That is part of what is in our membership covenant. You will be in each other's lives speaking the truth of the Bible. And the reason I mentioned submitting to the same elders, obviously part of that relates to affirming the statement of faith, sitting on the same preaching, but Matthew 18, the famous church discipline passage, talks about the step where if you have a concern with a fellow Christian who's walking in open unrepentance, there's a step where you bring it to the church elders. And guess what? Our church elders can't do anything with someone who's a member of another church. So, so having a discipling relationship outside of your, your own church is going to choke your ability for accountability. It's hard to hold one another accountable when you don't submit to the same church leadership, when there's not that next level of where, who do we bring this to next. It's just really just you kind of spinning your wheels again and again. So Matthew 18 only makes sense if we're trying to push one another, one another towards godliness in the same church context. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's really not possible unless you want to be Roman Catholic, which you can go and do that. I would encourage against it, but all right. Uh, so that's where you find the discipling relationship. Who should you be looking for? You, okay, I, I want to do this. Who do I look for? Well, we're going to do this in, in two parts, one at a time. First for the discipler and then the disciple. Okay, discipler, disciple. Hopefully you understand what those words I'm trying to say. All right, if you're looking for someone to disciple, two things to look for. Jared and I use this language all the time. Are they hungry and are they humble? Are they hungry and are they humble? So there's the old saying, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. The same is true of discipleship. If, if the person you're trying to disciple is not hungry to grow, if they don't have this earnest desire to learn to be discipled, they won't. Every teacher has experienced this, right? If the students are just not into it, if they don't care, they're not going to learn. You can't force them to do it. One way I think you can tell if someone is, is hungry is they ask really good questions. I'm so encouraged when I, when I meet with people who, who just ask really good questions. There are, there are certain kinds of questions that are like intellectual exercise questions. Like, you know, I mean, no one actually asked this, but how many angels could you fit on the head of a pin or whatever? You know what I mean? If, could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it, right? This is like nonsense questions, right? That's just like a waste of time. But a good question is like, hey, here's what Jesus says in the Bible. How do I live that out in my life? Or, or what, is, what does godliness look like in this particular situation? How do I obey Jesus's commands? When those are the questions, that's someone who's hungry. That's someone who, who wants to grow, who wants to learn. But you then you also, secondly, need them to be humble. If someone has an appetite to learn, but not the attitude to receive, then you're going to run into a lot of problems. Peter identifies humility as the, the primary attitude someone should have when they're trying to learn from someone who's mature. First Peter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, to be clear, I mean, you can disciple anyone, you can try to disciple anyone if they're hungry and humble or not. But I'm just, I just raise these points to say you can't disciple everyone. 
You can't disciple everyone. Your own time is limited. So spend your time pouring into someone who is, seems to be more receptive to it, who's open to learning, who is hungry and humble. All right, then next, uh, what do you look for in someone to disciple you? I want to be discipled and everyone should be in both of these relationships. I hope I've made that clear. You should be discipling someone and you should be discipled by someone. These are the relationships we should have in the church. Uh, to, to find someone to disciple you, find someone who is spiritually mature. Spiritually mature. Now, I, I said earlier, right, there's iron sharpens iron, right? There's a mutuality to discipleship. That's true, but there's not a, a homogeneity to discipleship. It's not just, uh, you know, everyone who's uh, the same level of maturity getting together and trying to give each other advice. No, one of the people in, again, this is in the more formal kind of discipling relationship that I'm describing, one of the two should be more evidently mature. I think that's both prescribed and described in the Bible. So Galatians 6 Paul writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That language of you who are spiritual seems to be referring to a level of spiritual maturity. Is what Paul is saying. Those who are spiritually mature should step in and help someone who is caught in this transgression, this, this sin struggle. Uh, but also, First Corinthians, or not First Corinthians, First Kings twelve. Uh, we see how poorly things go when King Rehoboam ignores the counsel of the older men and listens to the younger men, the the less mature ones. Uh, and I know from my own personal experience how unhelpful it is to have a bunch of people the same maturity level giving each other bad advice. I mean, I've been guilty of this. I remember I was a small group leader when I was in high school for, I was like a senior and I was leading a group of freshmen. And yeah, I was more mature, but I would have been a Christian for like 18 months. And I, I, I shudder to remember the advice I gave at times. It was terrible. It was just bad, right? You know what I mean? Like I, I maybe could have been discipling someone who, you know, some of these kids were like raised in the church and knew their Bibles better than me, right? So I was not in a position to really be discipling them. Um, Maybe, yeah, someone younger or less mature would have been helpful. Um, but I just, yeah, when, when you have people who are functionally the same maturity level, uh, it, it just, it's not helpful to, to just continue to give each other bad advice. There should be someone more spiritually mature. Uh, now, I do want to be clear. That doesn't mean someone who knows more theology than you. Theology is part of discipleship. Make no mistake, it's part of discipleship. But... It's also true that Satan knows more theology than any, than any of us. So just because someone has a big brain and knows a lot of things doesn't mean they're the ideal discipler. There's a, a passage I love in Augustine's Confessions. If you've never read Confessions, it's, it might be my favorite book of all time. Uh, it is incredible. Um, and Augustine, who's this fourth century bishop, uh, big, brilliant theologian. He talks about how him and his, his buddies who are all super highly educated, University of Milan, you know, professor of rhetoric, super, super smart, big brain guys. They'd be talking about these like theological issues and they'd be discussing it. And then occasionally Augustine's mother, Monica, who was poorly educated, but extremely godly, would like walk in the room and they'd be like, she'd be like, what are you guys talking about? And they'd be like, oh, this, this thing. She'd be like, oh, here's the answer. And they're like, oh, she's right. 
You know, like these, these geniuses are spending days and she's just godly. She just knows the Lord. Monica, if you read Confessions, I, I cry every time I read about Monica's prayers for her children because she is just an unbelievably godly woman. Uh, and, and she knew the Lord better than her son with all his degrees and all his brilliance. Uh, and that is worth more than, you know, a hundred grand in theological education any day. So that is what you should be striving for. Someone who just exudes that, that godliness. All right. Second thing that's important. We got to move a little quicker here. Sorry, we're going longer than I expected. Uh, a discipler also needs to be hungry and humble. So it's not just for the person who is the disciplee. It should also be the discipler. Everyone should realize if you're pouring into someone, you're not just the genius who knows all the answers. You too are a work in progress. Philippians 3, Paul says, brothers, I do not, he's talking about salvation in Christ, maturity in Christ. I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. It's not something just for those who are the baby Christians who have so much to learn. They really need to be hungry and humble. No, Paul's saying that should be a sign of the maturity. The mature is well. All right. Uh, a couple of other things I just want to mention here. Uh, I'll try to do these quickly. Uh, for discipling relationships, gender the normal biblical pattern is for men to disciple men and women to disciple women. There are exceptions, uh, but that is the normal biblical pattern. It's not wrong for you know, a man or a woman to give the opposite gender biblical counsel or to recognize something in the scriptures and encourage them to godliness. But the biblical pattern, Titus 2 is one of the places we see that gender is something that is important in these relationships. Uh, secondly, age. Uh, as a general rule, again, general rule, not a guarantee, general rule, uh, there should be a disparity in age in a discipling relationship. And there's really two reasons for that. One, age often, not always, often corresponds with maturity. Uh, and two, if you're in the same life stage, you will likely share the same blind spots. Uh, so, I mean, it just, on a real simple level, it wouldn't be all that helpful for me and every other 31-year-old guy with young kids in our church to get together all the time because we all share the same, we're all like super tired from our kids. We have to share the same frustrations you know, in our own lives because we're in the same life stage, right? But I remember at our church in Chicago, uh, I, we were asking for prayer with our community group uh, and I was just like, yeah, Charlie was like six months. I'm like, yeah, we're really, really tired. Pray for us. Uh, and uh, one of the elders of our church, who was the, the leader of the community group, just said, yeah, you guys are in the thick of it. And him saying that was like shockingly encouraging because I had spent time with a lot of people my own age and we would just commiserate about having young children, right? And he was an older guy who had a slightly older children and he knew, he, he's like, I've been through that. It doesn't last forever. It was making it really clear. Like, it doesn't last forever. Like, God will carry you through. It'll be fine. And just having his insight, him able to speak into my life that right now we're in the thick of it was really, really helpful. Uh, I'll just say, uh, young people, I love you guys. You guys are great. I prefer, I love when I see gray hairs in a membership class. It makes me so happy, right? Because 
if we are, if we are going to be like, if we're a church for 30 year olds, I mean, let's just be real. Jared, myself, Tim, most of the guys that stand on the stage are in their low 30s. And I don't want us to be a church for 30 year olds. If we're a church for 30 year olds, we will stunt our own growth. We will not be healthy, right? And that, that is not what I want the Parkway Church to be. So age really does matter. Uh, yeah, we'll keep moving here. Uh, proximity and availability is real simple. If you live an hour from someone and your work hours are the opposite, you're just never gonna get time to be together. So it's hard to disciple someone who's just never available and doesn't live close to you. Uh, and then strategic here, uh, I wanna be careful with this one. Uh, it might be better to focus discipleship on people who already have some influence among others. So if there's a, a guy who leads a Bible study of 15 people who look up to him and respect him and listen to him, and I can pour into him, that'll probably bear fruit in the lives of these 15 people. There's something strategic about that, right? It's not just, I, I, I say I wanna be careful because I think Sometimes in Christianity, we have this idea like, if you can just get the popular kids to believe in Jesus, the rest of them will follow too. And that's so false. Uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, and actually the Bible uh, talks about God shaming the wisdom of the age uh, and, and choosing the weak uh, to shame the strong, right? Uh, so it's often the, God works the opposite way. Um, but in the church, if we can be strategic about pouring into people who are already pouring into others, um, there's, there's a benefit to that. Uh, okay, so we have spent almost all of our time on uh, the, the who and the where and things like that. Very briefly, this, this was intended to be shorter anyway, this last part. What does the actual work of discipleship look like? Uh, this will be shorter and vaguer than most of you would like. Part of the reason for that is not just because we're low on time. Uh, it's the simple fact that uh, this stuff is important. It's not irrelevant. You can't just do anything. But so much of discipleship happens in the margins of, of having relationships with one another. So I can't be like, here's the best book to ever read with someone and you're guaranteed, you know, 10,000% more godly, right? Or like, do this exact thing in conversation, ask these exact questions. Uh, so much of, of the inevitability of influence, right? Just happens being together and you reading good books and, you know, chewing the meat, spitting out the bones and having good discussions and talking about your lives. Uh, so it's hard to be overly specific about the work of discipleship. I'll give you three things to be, three things to do though in a discipling relationship. First, be committed. If you're reading a book, read it, mark it up, think about it, take notes, set a date and a time, guard that when you will get together, make sure it happens. Uh, like I said, one side of discipleship will not work. It is not productive. Second, be intentional. Ask good questions. I mean, ask, I mean, it's, it's great to shoot the breeze and get to know each other and, you know, talk about football. You should have a, a foundation of relationship of just knowing one another. That's great. Uh, but if your whole conversation is talking about the football game yesterday, uh, you, you're probably not, you're probably missing an opportunity for real serious spiritual conversations that could be more productive in each other's lives. So uh, yeah, you don't want to have a relationship that could exist, a conversation even that could exist even if Jesus didn't, right? So you should talk to each other like you were both followers of Jesus because you are. So be intentional about it. Uh, third, be patient. 
be patient. Discipling is hard. It takes time. I hope I've made that clear. You don't want to oversell it. You are working, Colossians 1, to present someone mature in Christ. That takes time. You know, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't grow like a chia pet. It's not just add water and two weeks later, there it is, right? Be patient. Uh, And then now three things to do. First, probably obviously, read the Bible together. Use the scriptures. You can pick a book of the Bible to read together, read on your own, and then talk about it while you're meeting. You could read a commentary together if you want help on how to study the Bible. I did a theological equipping class on that a few weeks ago. Go listen to that. Uh, The point is, get the Bible in front of you. Use it to speak into each other's lives. Another idea, use good books. There are so many great resources. We have an embarrassment of riches out there. There are bad resources, make no mistake. There are books that if you, if you ask me, I would say, don't read that together. Uh, so feel free to ask your elders, ask your staff. Uh, is this a book, good book to read? What do you think about this? Or ask for recommendations, right? This is why we give away books in tech. This is why uh, last semester I had a list, or we both had a, a list of recommended resources at the end of every lesson. Because like, you want to learn more about this? Here are some good books. Getting good books in each other's lives is a good ministry. Uh, one thing I often try to do uh, in a discipling relationship when we're reading a book together is I'll say, send me an email uh, before we meet with just some of your observations, maybe questions you had, uh, agreements, disagreements, how, to, how you thought about how to apply some of the things you read in your own life. And then I just kind of use that as the basis for conversation. It's really, really useful. Uh, and then sixth, finally, pray together. This should be obvious, right? Your, your maturity in Christ won't happen if God doesn't work. So pray. You won't share godly wisdom with someone if God doesn't give it to you. So pray. You need God for every bit of a discipling relationship. So prayer is essential to it. All right. So let me pray now. I'll give away a few books and then we'll do some Q&A. All right. Sounds good. Father, uh, we are thankful just for these few moments we get together where we get to talk about this serious but joyful work of discipleship. We pray, God, that you would work in the lives of our church members, uh, help everyone in this room, God, to know that uh, you have given them your spirit, you have given them your word, uh, and you have worked in their lives to make them more like your son, and they have things to give into the lives of the brothers and sisters. So God, I ask for uh, wisdom, I ask for strength in that task, and God, we ask that you would work. You would mold the members of the Parkway Church into the image of your son, so that one day we will see him and rejoice in glory. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.